Uh, Well, we've been working through Exodus since fall, and uh, we're going real slow through the Ten Commandments right now. The plan is that we're doing one commandment a week till we finish these, and then to finish up Exodus, we'll actually be flying over at a pretty, uh, pretty fast level for the rest of Exodus, and we plan on wrapping up by the end of summer. So, so that's where we're going with things. And as we work through the Ten Commandments, these commandments, we said, are a reflection of God's character. Uh, they're things that he commanded to reflect who he is. And so for us, our response to God's commands is very much our response to God. Um, that, that we can't re- say that we're responding to his commands in one way, but we're responding to him in another way. When we, we bucket God's commands, we're bucking at God. When we resist God's commands, we're resisting God. Uh, we don't have Jesus in our hearts, but then refuse to obey the things that he says. You know, we, we don't accept God, but refuse his word. And so as we work through this law, it's going to upset us at some points. Um, it threatens our rule and our reign over our lives. It says that we can't just go on living in the way that we used to live. Uh, it exposes some things that sometimes we'd rather not know about ourselves. It exposes the things that we love. It exposes the things that we fear. And it exposes uh, who it is that we worship. And, and it exposes our need for the Holy Spirit to be working so that we can be, uh, become more and more obedient as we see Jesus for who he is as we open up the scriptures. And this eighth commandment that we're going to look at today isn't that shocking on the surface. But it does demand a reshaping of how we view the world. And it does challenge us at the heart and exposes the things that we love in a really uncomfortable way. So Exodus 20, verse 15, it says, you shall not steal. And good law. I mean, like on the surface, we read that and it's it's pretty straightforward that God wants us to not take stuff from people. So we don't cheat people out of their stuff. We don't use false weights and measures to defraud people. We uphold our end of a contract. If someone loans us money, for example, we don't steal from them by not repaying them, even if down the road we regret the fact that we took out that loan. Um, we, we don't deceive people to get them to buy something from us. We pay our employees what we told them we would pay them. We don't sue people with exaggerated claims just to get their stuff. We don't steal stuff. And at the heart of all this is that we're not supposed to covet, but we'll focus on that more in a couple weeks as that's the last commandment. And, and this whole thing, this command means that God says that things in the society work better if people own things. So not everything should belong to everybody, but individuals should own and care for their own stuff. And this command says something important about stuff, about the material world that we cannot take for granted. If I'm commanded not to steal things that belong to my neighbor... That means that those belongings are good things, which is not something that everybody believes. Um, The New Testament was written in large part to a world that embraced a doctrine called Gnosticism with a G, and part of that doctrine was the idea that the, the material world, the physical creation, is bad. And that we all need to kind of shed as much of it as we can and rise above it. And that final salvation one day would come when our spirits left us and went to their ultimate destination, which is not a material world, but just like some kind of floaty place that they go to. Uh, And we've ascended to a higher plane where we've left behind all of the badness of the material world. So to Gnostics, the material world was bad. And if they were consistent with what they believed, that drove them to asceticism, where they gave up uh, as much enjoyment of physical things as they possibly could. They really believed that the problem was material things, that sin was in the stuff, and that being good means denying yourself as much good as you po- as much of, as much stuff as you possibly can. And and I think sometimes even in the church we'll send some mixed messages about this. Like, we'll say things that that make it sound like we're saying that material things are bad, but then also we say, so share them with your neighbor, which doesn't make sense because we don't, I mean, we, we don't say, oh, you have a flu, share that with your neighbor. Like, we say, stay home, please don't share that. We, we're commanded not to share bad things, but sometimes we'll say, things are bad, so share them, and that's a mixed message. Uh, sometimes we'll, we'll also say that it's bad to have things, So give your things to the poor, which would then make them have things and would make them be bad like you. And so so that doesn't make sense. And, and And if we're commanded to share with the poor, which we are, aren't we being commanded to give them something bad and something that will make them bad? 
Um, so, so we'll say that to have material things is bad or that material things are bad. We'll, we'll talk like sin is in the stuff. But in saying don't steal, God's affirming the goodness of that stuff and the goodness of owning that stuff. And now all this is a super dangerous statement because we make gods out of stuff. The, the first thing that we worship when we take God off the throne of our lives is the material world. Um, Jesus said you can't serve God in money. God wants to be our God. He wants to rule over our lives and reign over our lives. And stuff wants to be our God. Money wants to be our God. We can't have both as our ultimate driving force at the same time. So what do we do with things? What do we do with, with money? What do we do with wealth? What do we do with goods? How do we treat them like they're good, like Scripture says, but then also allow them to not be our gods? What do we do with these things? And 1 Timothy 6, where we'll spend most of our time today, if you could turn there, has a great breakdown of the, the dangers and the delights and the duties that come with the stuff that God gives us. And in this Ten Commandments series, um, I just thought it hadn't been awkward enough so I thought today we would talk about money uh, so that it won't be awkward at all. And if, if you're brand new here, um, you're probably saying, yeah, this is exactly what I thought it would be, um, that we're going to walk into church and they're going to talk about money. If you've been here for a while, you know that we actually don't do this a lot. I think the last time, if, if I uh, measured right, was two years ago. So we do this on average every other year or so. We actually talk about money less than Jesus talked about money, and we're not better than him. Um, we haven't found a, a better way to do things than Jesus had. So this is actually a deficiency here that we don't talk about it enough. Um, but it's an important thing for us to talk about because Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It does expose a lot about our hearts with how we, we deal with the material world. And so 1 Timothy 6, verses two, or starting in verse 2, he says, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with, with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And so this is the first danger when it comes to the material world, when it comes to stuff and when it comes to money. Um, this is a danger that we call the prosperity gospel. And this is a, a lie that has spread like crazy all throughout our country and is now uh, going to other countries in large part because of our missionaries. And this is the teaching that if you're right with Jesus, you'll get wealthy and healthy. And any failure to be wealthy and healthy will come, it, it's only coming from sin in your heart or from a lack of faith. So if times are tight financially, you just need to claim something, you need to believe harder, you need to claim your miracle, and then you'll have the things that you want. And there are a lot of problems with that, that doctrine, but, but one big problem with the prosperity gospel is that it motivates you to love Jesus by offering material wealth as the reward for loving Jesus. It says what verse 5 says, that godliness is a means to gain. But notice that he says that people who, who say that are depraved of mind and deprived of the truth. So we aren't supposed to look at godliness as the way that we climb to this place where we get the ultimate thing for us, which is material gain. Wealth is not ultimate. And it's actually a violation of the first commandment to teach this prosperity gospel, which is we're putting another God before Jesus. So a big danger is that we believe stuff is ultimate and that stuff becomes our God and stuff becomes the ultimate goal that if we follow Jesus, we can get to that place. 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, he says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. And this is another danger is that we can come to believe that stuff can satisfy us. And according to this verse, there is no connection between our potential for contentment and the stuff that we have. If we have food and we have clothing, we have just as much potential to be content as if we have a yacht and a mansion and a Bugatti and a Scrooge McDuck pool of gold that we go home and, and swim in at night. The, the contentment potential is exactly the same. 
Now, this isn't saying that it's wrong to pursue some things, you know, to pursue the raise, to pursue the house, uh, to pursue the education. It's not wrong to a certain degree in our lives to pursue different forms of wealth, but it's absolutely a lie we're believing if we think getting there will make us content. Because contentment just doesn't come from stuff. And any rich person will tell you that. That, that it may be a, a lot of different ways their life changes with the wealth that they get. And there might be a lot of goods even that have come into their life because of that wealth. But if they're honest, they'll tell you that it doesn't give me any more potential for contentment. You might say, yeah, that's easy for rich people to say. Um, but here's the thing. You would tell yourself that too. And here's what I mean. In, in the last 15 or 20 years, nearly everybody here has gotten ridiculously wealthy. And, and maybe not like in our checking accounts or the houses we own, but most people here now have smartphones. And we now have in our pocket all the information in the world. Someone has a smartphone. Um, but <laughs> um, So... We have in in our pocket all this information. We have access to the greatest possible library. It's like we have a team of servants that can book us a cab, arrange a reservation, that can manage our budget, that can pay our bills, that can wake us up gently in the morning, that can be a personal trainer, that can do our shopping for us. 20 years ago, you would have had to have been a multimillionaire to have that much help working for you all the time. And it's not like we're ridiculously happy now. I mean, we're not more content than we were before we had these things. In fact, in some ways, we're more discontent because that same device allows us to see what our friends are up to at all times. And so it's almost like we've got another servant whose job is to look in our friends' windows and then report back to us that they have it better than we do. (laughs) So we might need to fire that guy. But we have, there's the potential for discontentment there too. And so, so biblically, and we've experienced it, there is no connection between the amount of contentment we can have and the amount of things we can have after we have the bare essentials. Okay, verse 9, he says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So here's a big danger, is that we could put the pursuit of wealth before the pursuit of God, and that leads to all kinds of evil. And again, he's not saying that that money is evil. He's saying that the love of money leads to all kinds of evil, that we'll do all kinds of, of bad things out of the love for money, out of the ultimate pursuit of wealth. And he uses some super strong language here. He says it plunges people into ruin. It says people get snared by it, like they're caught in a trap. And he says that they're impaled, that they're pierced through because of the love of money, and they wander from the faith. And now sometimes we can say, you know, obviously this doesn't apply to me. This applies to to rich people, and we all define rich people as someone with more than me. And so we can kind of get out of these things and say this doesn't really apply to me. But man, this pursuit of money as ultimate and the love of money is a problem for rich people or poor people. You can love money and put the pursuit of money before the Lord's demands and have that money and then wander from the faith because you got it, where you feel like you've got enough. You don't really need anything. You don't need a Savior. You don't need the Lord because you, you have everything that you need. So, so pursuing wealth and getting it can certainly lead you astray. But we can also be led astray when we pursue it but don't get it. And we we get bitter at Jesus because he didn't give me that thing that I thought he should have given me. And I'm walking away. What's he doing for me? This This is a temptation for everybody. Jesus warned us about it in the parable of the sower, where he describes um, spreading the word of God like sowing seed. And he said there's certain seed that falls um, among the thorns and then gets choked out. And he says in Matthew 13, verse 22, as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. So we can believe lies about stuff and its potential to save and satisfy, and if we do, it can choke out the work of God's word in our lives. So stuff is a good gift, but it's a good gift that has a lot of warnings about it attached to it. Similar to alcohol, like where scripture describes wine as a gift from God, but then warns in all kinds of ways about our propensity to be destroyed by it if it's not moderated and kept in its right place in our lives— There are lots of good things that can become very bad things if we put them in the wrong place in our lives, 
And, and wealth is certainly one of those things, maybe the chief thing that rushes to the throne of our life the second we take Jesus away from it. So verse 11, he says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you, were ma- and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who is his testimony, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, and whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And so our duty here is to pursue Christ above wealth, pursue Christ as ultimate. And he's contrasting pursuing Christ with pursuing money. And if you've ever had a season where you pursue money as ultimate, you know what it's like, where you're checking your accounts a few times a day, um, when, when your mind is free, it just kind of wanders to your dreams of, of being wealthy, where you evaluate every decision first and foremost by how it contributes to the bottom line, how it contributes to your net worth. Um, depending on your job, you're only meeting with people who benefit you financially. Everything gets filtered through whether it benefits you materially when you're pursuing wealth first and foremost. And he says that first filter should be Christ. Pursue righteousness. Put Christ in that ultimate place. When your mind is free, let it wander to the scriptures or to dreams about the good that you could be doing in the world. Pursue love which is always an action in the scripture where you're doing good for others. He says, keep the good confession. Study to become wise and to know the Bible. Um, The love of Christ puts Christ and his kingdom as the first factor. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. So notice the contrast here between what stuff can do for us and what Jesus can do for us. He says that the stuff impales us, and ensnares us and kills us. But 1 Timothy 6.13, he says that God is the one who gives life to all things. So you have Jesus as the life-giving God and stuff as the life-destroying God. Jesus is the one who saves us and makes us okay. Wealth is the one who, who steals away our life. Jesus is not the means to something better than Jesus. There is nothing better than Jesus. And wealth, which is a good thing from God, if we put it on the throne of our lives, will, will suck away our life. Um, there was actually a time when Jesus was teaching, and someone wanted to use Jesus to get something that was more important to him than Jesus. And so in Luke chapter 12, verse 13, Jesus is teaching and says, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So Jesus is teaching. Someone raises his hand like he has a question. Jesus calls on that guy. He doesn't have a question. He just sees that Jesus is in some authority here. People are listening to Jesus. And his brother has hoarded the entire inheritance for himself. So he says, teacher, tell my brother to split that with me. So he's using Jesus to get stuff. Using Jesus to kind of manipulate so he can get the the thing that he's after. And Jesus isn't having it. Verse 14, it says, but he said to him, man... Who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to all of them, so he kind of uses this guy as an object lesson, and says, he said to all of them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He says, guys, life's not all about possessions. Life's about more than that. It says, and then he told a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So look at this guy's plan. He wants to save up enough so that he can preach to his soul, you're okay now. You have enough. Now you can rest. Because you've got stuff, you can relax. You can eat, you can drink, you can be merry. 
So the problem with this rich guy wasn't that his land produced plentifully. Obviously, God had something to do with that. And it wasn't even that he decided to build some bigger barns to store some stuff. The problem was his attitude toward his wealth. He wanted his wealth to save him and to secure him and to give him joy. He wasn't looking at his wealth as a gift from God. He was looking at it as God. And so once he gets it, that's when he preaches to his soul, now you're okay. Now you'll be all right. So his stuff was his ultimate wealth. His stuff was his ultimate worth. His stuff was his security. And now he didn't need a provider. He didn't need a father in heaven. The stuff wasn't bad, but when we dethrone God from our lives, it always creates an open position, and our stuff's usually the first thing that applies for that job. So that's what happens in this guy's life. He, he makes wealth his God. He's living life without God, and that's why God says to him, fool. Psalm 53.1 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so here's a guy who's living like God doesn't exist, and, and he makes the worst possible mistake with his wealth. He pursues it like it is God and like it can make him okay. And God says, you're a fool. You missed out on real life because you thought your life was to be found in all that stuff. So those are, are some of the warnings. And he keeps going in 1 Timothy 6, 17. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. And this is part of our duty with wealth, and, and that is to make sure that our wealth never defines us. When I say wealth, I don't mean filthy rich, but just stuff, the things God gives us. Let's not let them define us. And we've got to remember that our king and our Lord was at least at times homeless. So that means that there can't be a connection between a person's value and a person's money. But money will lie to us. Sometimes we start to get some of it. We start to prosper financially, and it defines us a little bit too much. And if you're wondering, is that happening to me? Well, maybe look at your life and kind of evaluate who do you spend time with socially. And if it's only people in your socioeconomic strata, if it's only with the people that, that have wealth like you have, it might be that somehow this has started to, to define you. It could be that it's starting to make you a little bit haughty where you somehow believe that you're superior to people who have less. But be careful, because that's the heart of that guy in Jesus' parable, saying that your stuff is what makes you okay. Your stuff is what makes you who you are. So we need to be charged not to be haughty and not to set our hopes on our stuff. But he says, set our hopes on God, who, verse 17, richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So he gives all the cautions, all the warnings, and he doesn't say then that material goods are bad. He says that they're gifts. They're gifts that were provided by God so that they could be enjoyed. And so, so according to this, one of the reasons that God gives us material blessing is for our enjoyment. And that might be shocking to hear at church because maybe you thought the message was that, that things are bad, sin is in the stuff, so we need to jettison all of our stuff like a hot potato before it wrecks us. But stuff isn't bad. Sin's not in the stuff. So on this side, we have to challenge a couple other things that our, our culture says about stuff. You know, our culture, on the one hand, is super obsessed with the pursuit of wealth, but then on the other hand, is super guilty about stuff. And I think you see this most clearly at Christmas time. It's like we have this tradition of going out and buying lavish gifts for the people we love while we're simultaneously scolding one another for buying those gifts for the people we love. Um, that, that we're going out and doing this thing with material stuff for, to, to bless other people, but then feeling really guilty about it at the exact same time. And so we have to be careful that there is no guilt that is just by nature associated with stuff, certainly stuff where we are, are giving gifts away. Scripture says that, that God gives us good things to enjoy. You know, sometimes also there can be like a real suspicion of people who we think are wealthy. And again, we define that as people with just a little bit more than me, that I got everything I have legitimately, but someone who has something more than me, they're shady. Like, yeah, you don't get there, honestly. You get to where I am, honestly, but not a little bit more. And, and so we've got that suspicion that we, we feed of people who are wealthy. But according to this verse, God does give material things. And so some people cheated to get there, but some people didn't. 
And so there shouldn't be a default suspicion of people who, who have those things. God gives things, and he gives things to enjoy. And he shows this in the way that he created the entire world. He created it with abundance. I mean, he didn't just take Adam and Eve and put them in a dungeon with enough gruel to get by. Um, but, but he put them in this garden of delights where there were fruit trees, way more fruit trees than they needed. Like he was an over-the-top generous giver. Um, he, he gave them that variety. He gave them that beauty. He didn't just drop them in the middle of a gray and functional plane that they would be liberated from someday. He put them in that garden, and then he carved the Alps, and he carved the Grand Canyon, all that natural beauty. You have God who's this over-the-top giver to Adam and Eve. He gives way more than they needed, overflowing. He's, he's a God of abundance. He, he plopped them in a garden of delights in a world of abundance that's green with the promise that if they go out and cultivate it, it'll grow even more things. So again, stuff isn't bad. Sin's not in the stuff. Sin's in the heart. And it can be in our hearts if we are greedy and gluttonous, but that same sin can be in our hearts if we're total ascetics who are defined by what we don't enjoy because we're still getting our identity from stuff. So there's really a ditch on each side of the road. There's the prosperity gospel error that says that God must make us rich if we're faithful. And then on the other side, there's a poverty gospel error that says that it's sinful to receive or to enjoy any degree of wealth. The prosperity gospel says it's, it is sinful not to have things. The poverty gospel says it's a sin to enjoy any things or to enjoy those things for yourself or for your family, uh, anything other than the necessities. And I say this because I think there are a lot of people who just can be riddled with a false guilt. You know, sometimes the people who need to go on vacation the most are, are the kind of people who would feel totally guilty if they ever went on vacation and spent money on something so frivolous. You know, there are people who feel guilty about resting, about enjoying any degree of the gifts that God gives us, about spending even moderate amounts of money on, on fun and on rest, and they miss out on some of the goodness of God's creation that God's given for our flourishing. So God has given us good things to enjoy. Stuff's good. Otherwise, God wouldn't tell people not to steal it from people, and he certainly wouldn't tell us to share it. And then beyond that, he definitely wouldn't have been embodied in it when he came to walk among us. Jesus was here in the flesh. He wasn't here as a spirit or phantom or anything like that. He had a real body, and there was no sin in him whatsoever. The material world by itself isn't bad. So he goes on, verse 18, um, he says, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is truly life. So the duty with our wealth is to do good. Um, when, when we receive things, those are to be enjoyed, but also those are opportunities to do good for others. And at the time that the scriptures were written, you almost had to be pretty rich to have any free time at all. I mean, people would work absolutely nonstop just to make ends meet. I mean, through most of history, almost everybody had to work constantly just to get basic meals and basic food on the table. But, but if someone was beyond that, where they actually had some free time, he says, great, good gift from God, use that to do good. Do good with it. Don't feel guilty about having it. Use it for good. And this means, because he's not real specific here, we should also, as Christians, be people who are, are glad when we know other Christians are doing good, even if it's not necessarily where I would spend the money. And we see this sometimes, like, on social media, like, a cause comes up, and someone will post a cause that, by all measures, is good, like, it's not a bad thing to do. And there's inevitably, like, a Christian scold who comes along and says, why would you ever give to that when there's this need over here? And of course, obviously, the answer to that would be to post the reply to them and say, well, why would you ever give to that when there's this thing over here? And we could go back and forth forever until we find the pinnacle ultimate need, and that's the only thing that anyone could ever righteously give to. He just says, do good. Do good. And we should also check our hearts, because sometimes when we scold people for doing good that isn't the good that I would do, we're really not doing that much good ourselves. So Luke, or I'm sorry, this is John chapter 12, verse 3. Um, Jesus is, uh, has a woman named Mary who comes up to worship him. And it says this. It says, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. 
So here comes this woman, and she is lavish in her generosity for the cause of worship. She takes this jar that has, about, has perfume in it that's worth about a year's salary, and she breaks it. So broken and poured out is this perfume, and it's poured on the feet of Jesus. Now there's someone there to let her know that that could have been used for better things. Verse 4, it says, But Judas Iscariot, and if you're not familiar with the story, um, Judas is not the good guy. Um, It says, Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? So he scolds her for this good thing that she does because he cares about the poor and because of that better thing that she could have done. Good old Judas just has a heart for the poor. Um, (laughs) It's not what verse 6 says. It says he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So he wasn't given either. In fact, he was stealing. But a smokescreen for his theft was saying, you should have given to this better thing. So it's important for us, if we're quick to scold people for the good they do, to really ask, is this just a smokescreen for the fact that I'm not doing any good? Like, do I really care for this other thing, or is there something else going on? He, he says in First Timothy, we do all kinds of good, and we shouldn't be the scoldy type who criticize the generosity of others. So we should do good with it. And then he says to be ready to share. Now, this works short-term and long-term. And this means that in our regular budget, we build some margin, a big margin into our lives for regular generosity and sharing. Jesus said to give to those who ask of you. And so, so we want to have margin in our lives where we don't do what most people do, where you spend 105% of your income at all times on yourself. We want to leave some margin there and, and make sure that there is a, a wide margin for all kinds of generosity in our lives. And then we also want to think long-term about that too, so that when we go to get the car loan and there's, you know, we could get the really nice car or we could get the decent, reliable car. If we get the really nice car, we're going to be stretching ourselves, taking out this loan. It's not wrong to get the really nice car by itself, but a question that we have to ask is, is this going to leave me so stretched that I won't be ready to share, that I won't have that margin in my life? Can, can I live with just reliable as opposed to flashy so that I do have that margin to share. And there, there are a lot of things that we'll judge people for. Like, so if, if you're in a different place and you're weighing, like, should I buy the lake house? Not necessarily sin. Lakes are awesome and houses are cool. And like, these are, that's a good thing that can be received with thanksgiving. But a question to ask is, is this going to stretch me so far that I won't be able to be a generous person? Um, and if the answer is no, and, and you're doing that for the glory of God, invite me over. Like, that's great. Like, that's, do that. But, but don't feel, so it's not a, this is always wrong, this is always right, but it is a, are you going to be ready to share? Are you going to be able to be generous? And that's, that's the duty here. He says, give generously. When God gives us material things, he gives them to us for, for joy and for generosity. And when we read this eighth commandment, do not steal, we can sometimes think that we're obeying it if we're not taking things from other people. But in Scripture, the opposite of stealing is not not stealing. It's giving. In fact, listen to Ephesians 4.28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So he says, if you steal, stop that right away and then begin working very hard so that you have enough for yourself and your family and then enough to share. Now, some of this is a little bit of a general statement. Like he's talking about the way the world normally works. And and what this says is that the normal way of things is that by very hard work, we can provide what we need and have enough to share. But that doesn't mean that there aren't exceptions. I mean, people get sick. And no matter how hard you work, you can't pay those medical bills. There are widows who have had tragedy come into their lives and they they can't make ends meet. There are people who are mentally or physically incapable of of working to be able to provide enough for themselves and to share with others. And Scripture calls calls us to make sure that we're really generous and generous specifically toward them. 
So, so the generality is that normally in this green world that God made that grows things, we can work real hard and that will provide enough for us and our families and enough to share, but there are exceptions. And if you're here today and you are in the category of an exception, you know, you are the widow or the orphan. You're the, the person who, no matter how much you work, no matter how many hours you put in, it isn't making those basic ends meet. We want you to know that we're here for you. We want you to know that giving goes both ways here, that we will help you. Um, you can email us anytime, info at graceroadchurch.org, and set up a meeting. Tim Dietrich, one of our elders, oversees our benevolence. We want to give to you. We want to help you. And we don't want you to experience any guilt at all for the season of poverty that you're living in. Um, the gospel is free. And membership in the family of God is, is a free thing. But for most people, most of the time, we can work hard and provide and give, if we keep our lifestyles and, and our covetousness in check. With our priorities right, we can live lives of radical generosity. And remember, we're only keeping this command not to steal when we're giving. So I know the question in a lot of hearts is, all right, how much? And I want to be cautious with that question because it's a strange question to ask of the God who gave his son to die for us. Because it seems like it really wouldn't be too much no matter what he asked, right? Like, he gave his son. He also gave us every breath we have, every resource, every ability to go to work. Um, and, and also believing the gospel makes us generous people, and it imparts our giving with a certain joy. So it's not like I have to do this thing, but we get to do this thing. We get to give to the poor. We get to spend more on groceries because we're practicing hospitality and having people come over. We get to give generously so that the church flourishes. These are like privileges in the Christian life. They're not just these horrible burdens. And it's also true that the New Testament never gives a percentage. But from what we know of the early church, they wouldn't have needed one. I mean, you read through the book of Acts and you have people selling off their land and laying the proceeds at the feet of the apostles because they just wanted to give and invest in this new and growing kingdom. And when someone's that generous, it's not like you have to stand there and check any boxes and say, oh, did you give this percentage? Because the bar, I mean, you're going to go way above the bar when you have that generous heart anyway. So, So we have to be careful because also all we have is God's. And so he's allowed to ask for anything. So the how much question is really a dangerous one. But I do think there is a good-hearted way to ask that question. I mean, we go to God's law for guidance for things. And so to just say, man, I don't even know, like, where am I supposed to start? How is this supposed to work? What do we do? And I think that there are principles that that guide us, that the law of God is there to guide our lives. And so just a, a few of those principles. I mean, you go back to the beginning of Genesis, and before God ever gave his commands, before he ever gave his law, the standard amount that you see people giving in worship is, is 10% of the increase of their crops, for example. Um, in Genesis 28, Jacob gives a tithe, a tenth. Uh, Hebrews 7, 6 says that Abraham gave a tithe in worship. So these were things that people were doing in devotion and out of worship. And that was before there was a temple system set up. That was before there were any laws. So the fact that there's no temple anymore and that there are no ceremonial laws anymore doesn't mean that that's not a valid thing to do anymore. Um, But then God's law came, and under that law, it was kind of put into code, and there were a bunch of different offerings and things, but in general, 10% of income was required, and that went to maintain the temple, it helped the poor, and it paid the the Levites. Uh, The Levites were one of the tribes of Israel who were like the full-time ministry people. In Numbers 18.21, it says, to the Levites, I've given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting. They didn't have land like everybody else. They were devoted to that one task of of leading in worship, and so they were compensated for that. Another reason for the tithe was to teach people to worship God with all of their lives. Kind of like when I go on a a date night with my wife, that's a reminder that I'm completely hers, even though there are lots of nights that are not date nights. When we give a tithe to God, it's a reminder to us that everything we have is God's, even though we know that there are a lot of things that are just going to pay that cell phone bill and to to, um, meet the basic needs and and for some enjoyment. And so Deuteronomy 14.22 says, You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine and of your oil, and of the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. 
So, so this tithe, one that they ate in celebration, it, it was there so that they could learn to keep God first, to, to fear the Lord, to make God ultimate. And, and God's law held this out as the minimum requirement, so much so that people learned that the tenth of their income didn't even belong to them. And if they gave less than 10%, it wasn't just that they were being less generous, they were actually stealing. Like the 10% belonged to God. And in Malachi 3.8, he says, will man rob God, yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? So that was the portion that, that by default already belonged to God, and not to give it is not being less generous, it, it's stealing. And you see lots of different areas like this in Old Testament life, like where uh, people who had a field were not allowed to touch the edges of their field because the poor could come and glean there. That wasn't theirs. That was designated only for giving. But then we go to the New Testament, and we no longer have a temple system. It's not exactly the same. And when Jesus came, he fulfilled a lot of the ceremonial law. So it could be expected that he would totally abolish the tithe, just like he did the sacrifices in the Old Testament. But there's a passage. This is 1 Corinthians 9, verse 13. In the New Testament, he says, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, and he says, like, real fairly forcefully here, in exactly the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So he says in the same way that that Old Testament system for worship was, was supported, those, the, the New Testament system for ministry of the gospel is supported in the same way. So it's at least going to be something like it was in the Old Testament. So there's still a calling on the people of God to give in the same kind of way that they gave in the Old Testament. And this law of the tithe is a helpful guide in what's required of us, that that we give in a similar proportion, we give to the same kinds of places, to ministry, the poor, to worship, and, and we expect that that's the system that God has set up for the New Testament era so that we as Christians get to joyfully contribute to that. And I want you to know that on the one hand, I'm a member here, And so I'm called to the exact same kind of sacrificial generosity that you are. So this is not like, oh, there's an exemption for a pastor or something like that. No, this is, I'm called to the exact same thing. There's no out for me or anything like that. But then on the other hand, I also know that I'm a minister here. And I want you to know what a profound difference it makes that so many of you do obey these commands and give this way. Um, that so many of you have been able to do that because now we are able to carry out the ministry of the gospel in a far more full way than we used to be able to. Um, I know 10 years ago when we were starting the church and I was kind of balancing a bunch of different jobs to get it off the ground and just kind of survive, it was for a season and it was a good season and a fruitful season, but there's no way I would have been able to keep that up and still have a family and not, not a nervous breakdown. Like, and so um, the, the fact that so many came along and said, well, we know what we're called to do here as part of this body has made it so that we can have a team of ministers who devote ourselves vocationally with all of our time to serving the church with the word of God. And thanks, thank you. I thank you for, for your obedience in this, this category. It makes an absolute huge difference for our church, other ministries we support, other churches we're helping to plant. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a good thing that you do, and we do feel the effects of it. And Scripture says, where our treasure is, there will our heart be also. So when we as the church give in this way, we're saying that we have a heart that believes that the center of human flourishing is the proclamation of God's word as the basis for every area of life. And that the community life of the church is vital, that care for one another financially is a vital part of what we do, and that supporting others as they plant other churches is vital work. So when we give generously and proportionately from the first of our income, we're, we're saying something about our heart, and we're worshiping God with the first things he gives us. We're reminding ourselves that everything we have is God's, and we're saying to God as part of our worship that we're giving back to him what he's first given to us. We're acknowledging his provision for us. But we're not limited by the law. You know, we're not limited by the 10% in our giving. And, and the risk is sometimes we can check that box and say, there, I'm done. I'm doing what's required of me. But God wants us to be cheerful givers. And not only that, think of what the potential our lives have if we become more and more generous. 
If, if that 10% isn't the finish line for our generosity, but a starting place. And then when we go beyond that, we can give generously to things like open-door mission and missionaries. And in things like Young Life, they're reaching teenagers or Compass Care, uh, that we can support our friends who just need a date night, so we hire a babysitter for them and give them a gift certificate. Um, we can help the friend who's adopting so that we can literally be part of providing parents for an orphan. Um, we can rent a bounce house and throw a party for the neighborhood kids to reach out to neighbors. We can help friends with medical expenses. We can help plan churches. We can do good in all kinds of categories. We're just not limited by a tithe. So First Timothy says, do good. Be really ready to share. Dream about these kinds of things. Dream about the good that you could do and, and find your joy to go far beyond the minimum duty of tithing and call to see every resource that you have as given by God for enjoyment, but then also for pushing back darkness around you and for the good of the community. And ultimately, we give not because a law has been dropped on us, but because we're being shaped by the generosity of God. Um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, when Paul is encouraging this church to excel in the discipline of giving, he says, Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had, as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace— but as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. And I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. And here's what motivates them. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And grace can always be translated gift. That though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. He says, you know the gospel. And, and that shapes your life. We always become like the God that we worship. And at the heart of the Christian life, at the heart of the gospel message, is God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And if we are worshiping a God who's that generous, who's that over the top, that God of abundance, that God who broke and poured out his only son for us? How could that not make us radically generous people? How could that not shape us? He's called us to be people who are the most generous and life-giving people anywhere knowing that he's a father who provides. And also, if we believe the gospel, if we believe that I'm not defined by the stuff that I have, I'm a son or a daughter of God, then that means my wealth doesn't define me, so I can hold to it a little bit more loosely. If I believe that I have security in Christ, then my ultimate security doesn't come from my stuff, so I can hold to my stuff more loosely. I can, can give it, and I can even enjoy it more. If stuff isn't who I am, if I, if I have who I am all taken care of by Jesus, if stuff isn't ultimate, Jesus is ultimate, then stuff can become just stuff and be, can be used in radical generosity and to do all kinds of good in, in the world where God put us. Now we, we hear this and, and we kind of feel the weight of it and we can look at our lives and say, man, I, I can't say that I've been generous. Uh, by, by these standards, I'm a thief. Well, here's the good news for you. Jesus was crucified between two thieves. And while he was hanging up on the cross, one of those thieves looked to Jesus and said, remember me today when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. And that was before he ever gave, before he ever obeyed Ephesians 4.28, went out to work and do things and then give back. The thief died that day on the cross. And then he went into paradise with Christ. So forgiveness for thieves gives us a right relationship with God, even before we've turned things around financially. So if you're willing to repent and believe in him and trust in him, trust that Jesus' righteousness can be your righteousness because he died for you on that cross. If you're willing to trust that he died for thieves like you, he promises complete and total forgiveness. He's not calling you to, to come up with enough back pay so that you can finally earn your righteousness. He is your righteousness. You can turn to him and be forgiven and believe and be received by God, be part of the family of God. And then over time, as we learn to worship him and believe in him and make adjustments in our lives, we become increasingly generous and it becomes our joy to push back darkness around us with all the resources that God's given us. So there's good news for thieves like us in the gospel 
And there's a calling for us to be transformed by the work of his spirit in our lives. So let's pray. Well, Father, we confess that we often have treasured a lot of objects above our Savior. And we've carefully curated storehouses of idols that demand our worship. So forgive us for finding our salvation and our joy and our identity in them. Forgive us for preaching to our soul, you're okay when you have stuff. We confess that when you give us good gifts, we're prone to love them too much. We're prone to cling to them instead of thanking you for them and enjoying them and clinging to you. We, we rejoice too much in the wealth that you send, and we despair too much when you take it away. So, Father, forgive us. We pray that you teach us to delight in the real riches we have in Christ. The wealth of his righteousness given to us, the riches of his grace and his kindness poured out for us, and the huge inheritance that he's earned for all of us who would believe by his perfect obedience and death. Remind us of who we are in Jesus. As we walk through this world with temptation that's always calling to us, as we wrestle with sinful hearts full of desires and over-desires, I pray that you would draw our hearts and our minds to the cross every day so that we'll understand the true riches that we have. We confess we've neglected you often, but still you set your love on us before the creation of the world. And you allowed us to be the reward for your obedience. Soften our hearts with gratitude for that love. Thank you for your patience that's borne with us for so long and for the grace that makes us willing to be yours. And we just ask for more grace for obedience so that we desire what you desire and do what you want us to do. Don't let there be anything that keeps us from you. We pray that you keep us safe until that day when we'll see what no eye has seen and when we'll hear what no, no ear has heard and, that we'll know that, no, and when we'll know what no human mind has ever conceived. Until that day when we experience those kinds of riches in your presence, I pray that you'd help us to keep our hearts and our minds fixed on, on the treasure that Christ is for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand and worship him together.